0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, all of you in podcast land. Uh, We're back with another episode of the Ezra Klein Show, and the guest this week is Neera Tandit. Neera is the head of the Center for American Progress, Which is probably the most powerful and influential center left think tank in Washington. They were formed in the Bush era. They've become a central holder and funneler of talent to Democratic administrations in the Obama era. Nira herself is a really fascinating person. She grew up daughter of a single mother on food stamps in Massachusetts. She rose to become Hillary Clinton's director of policy in her Senate office. Then in her presidential campaign, she was Barack Obama and Joe Biden's director of domestic. Policy in the 2008 campaign. She worked on Obamacare in the Obama White House. We had a, a great discussion, but one thing that the discussion really focused on, which I was really interested in speaking to Nira about, is what it is like to work for Hillary Clinton. Nira, you should know, is a big supporter of Clinton's. She has campaigned for her, she's endorsed her. She's someone who could plausibly serve in a Clinton White House at a pretty high level. So you're, you're hearing here from someone who really likes and admires Clinton. I think that's a valuable and interesting perspective. There is this very large gap that, that I've noticed that others have written about between Clinton's public persona, this sort of idea of her as a stiff campaigner and this calculating politician, and what you hear from people who've worked with her privately. Who They describe Clinton as incredibly warm, briefed beyond any politician they've ever dealt with. Republicans will talk about what a great experience working with her is, even as publicly she's an intensely polarizing figure. And so speaking with Nira was, for me, a really interesting way to try to get a little bit more insight into the private version of Hillary Clinton, The, the Hillary Clinton who so impresses the people who work with her as a public servant, as opposed to the Hillary Clinton who is appearing on our television screens every night during the presidential campaign. So I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as as I did. As always, if you're enjoying the Ezra Klein Show, please share it with your friends on Twitter, on Facebook, on WhatsApp, on Snapchat. I really appreciate it when you let people know this is something that might be worth their time. It means a lot to me, and it's important for the success of the show. And as always, please send me your nominations for people you'd like to hear on the show. One reason I spoke with Nira is because a number of you asked me to. The email address for that is show at Vox.com. Again, show at Vox.com. Love your feedback. Love your suggestions keep them coming with that here's Nira. i learned something new about you actually when i was preparing for this podcast
3: oh my god i'm sorry
2: i didn't know you were a ronald reagan supporter
3: <laughs> i was for a good year i was like uh, in sixth grade i think it was sixth grade maybe seventh grade
2: was this I re-election his... or early reagan
3: no early reagan it was like his first state of the Union. I think it was sixth grade. I got very, very excited. I was like, America is great. (laughs) My mother is a very hardcore Democrat and kind of tolerated it for a while. And then eventually, I think after about a year or two, reminded me he was like pro-life and had interesting views on religious liberty, et cetera. And I kind of shifted off.
2: You grew up on food stamps, right?
3: Yeah, so my parents got divorced when I was five, and my father left. And then my mother, who'd never worked in her life, had to— my father had, like, sold the house, and he, like, took the money. So my mother and my brother and I got a rent control apartment at Section 8 Housing. We're very, very lucky uh, because just at that time, Massachusetts— or a few years before Massachusetts had passed this law where you— set aside some of your rental apartments for low-income housing. They would quicken your permits and you could build faster. So we lived in Bedford, Massachusetts, which is a very middle class town and Massachusetts has very good public schools. Because of that, we lived in Bedford and my mother was able to find an apartment in Bedford. So we didn't need to change schools. But I remember being like the only person in the lunch line with the little voucher for like 10 cents for lunch instead of $1. fifty. I remember being at Purity Supreme and my mom being the only one in line with food stamps. And I remember asking like, why did we, we the only ones with that. And I remember going to the welfare office with my mom and asking how long it was going to take and why were we still there and her saying it's just another minute for like an hour. So I have those, you know, I have those memories. I was very lucky. I mean, I was very lucky to be able to stay And I I should say, you know, by the time I was in, like, third or fourth grade, my mom, first she had a job as a travel agent with an Indian travel agent in Waltham, Massachusetts, and then ended up working at Raytheon as a travel agent. And by the time, a few years later, she got a job as a contracts administrator, which is like, a totally middle-class job. And by the time I was 11, she actually bought a house on her own.
2: So as someone who works in public policy and and, and shapes a fair amount of public policy Mm now— What did that teach you? What do you think that you believe about public benefits that that maybe other people don't believe?
3: Fundamentally, I look back at my own life and recognize that a bunch of people made decisions who never met me, never saw me, that altered my life course. People in Washington, people in Massachusetts made policies that were designed to help a person like me so you know, they didn't know me. That's what we do in Washington every day. We have these stupid debates about what Donald Trump says or, you know, why Congress isn't doing anything. But at the end of the day, we have a million decisions are made, whether we're going to expand opportunity or contract it. Right. That is sort of what's at the base of most of our public policy debates. And we live in cynical times. People don't believe that the government can do things to help people. But, you know, I'm a living example of someone who a bunch of, quote, unquote, government bureaucrats made a series of decisions. And I'm here because of that, you know, literally here because of that. My mother she's just Indian. Her family was in India. A lot of them, you know, her decision when my parents got divorced and my father left was to stay in the United States or to go back to India. You know, nobody ever got divorced, and she would have been essentially shunned, and her children would have been shunned. And she decided to stay in the United States and go on welfare in order for her children to have a life of real opportunity. I mean, it was, you know, and I I have lived my life, and I've had the promise of being able to do well in this country because of the kind of people we are.
2: Do you think the welfare system as it exists now in its post-reform era Mm
3: -hmm.
2: would have played the same role for your family?
3: Well, you know, my mother was on welfare three years. My own view of welfare is that welfare reform is really about ensuring every child has opportunity. It's not really about the parents. So I worry about a system that puts kids in worse positions because of the decisions their parents make. I mean, there are a lot of people who have parents who are not fully functional, and we have a system that decides to, in some ways, disadvantage kids because of the decisions their parents make, and I think that doesn't make a lot of sense.
2: So how do you go from Bedford, Massachusetts, to American politics? What is your first brush <laughs> with actually working in politics?
3: You know, I worked on the Clinton campaign the 92 Clinton campaign so I graduated from Bedford High School went to UCLA great school
2: I know <laughs> um,
3: and I got the bug you for You were politics. you were a
2: vice president at UCLA yeah, I right I was
3: external vice president external of UCLA that vice was my president. first that was definitely my first and last time external in direct vice, elected office.
2: external vice president we had that so I went to UC Santa Cruz and then UCLA and there are all these government positions that we had in those places <laughs> that don't appear to exist, like external vice president is a very, yes. a very strange one. It's,
3: yes, we had an external vice president and an internal vice president. So the internal vice president's job was to really deal with internal organizations like the fraternities and different groups in the. External VP was to work on issues of like fee increases because they were with the U C system. So, you know, it was a very serious job, Ezra, <laughs> that I don't think you're you're providing enough context. What was for. your
2: campaign slogan?
3: Fighting for students. <laughs> literally... Did anybody
2: not run on that campaign slogan? Was it just a million signs of different people saying fighting for students?
3: You know, it was actually a fascinating campaign. My husband was my campaign manager. You had people. It's a highly regulated system. You could only spend $600. The newspaper endorsement was really fundamental to to my (laughs) election victory. I had a lot of groups endorsed. It's really serious, like 12,000 people voted.
2: You'd worked on Dukakis' campaign, right?
3: I did. I worked on Dukakis' campaign as a precinct leader, and I, I, got, I got interested in politics from that experience. I was in Bruin Democrats. In fact, I met Jerry Brown as one of the leaders of Bruin Democrats when he was state party chair, and, you know, he's a fascinating, fascinating character. So I definitely got the bug about politics from the Dukakis campaign, which was my freshman year, and then really stayed at it. But got a serious bug in 1992, when it, which was my senior year. and Right before I graduated, I I had invited all the candidates to UCLA, and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton came.
2: So why were you for the Clintons and not Jerry Brown in 92? <laughs> he this was is what the people so, need to know, Nira. It
3: is so <laughs> weird. I got super involved in bill clinton's campaign right around new hampshire so all the sort of stories erupted around jennifer flowers and for some reason that motivated me to get involved like my mom called me and was like this is what they do to everyone who's like good in democratic politics and she started my indian mom started like volunteering in new hampshire she's from bedford so she, it's only half an hour away so she started volunteering in new hampshire
2: and what did you like about working in politics I mean, what was your job on the campaign and and how did it actually get you invested?
3: So, my. A lot of people
2: burn out on that.
3: The first things I did were just like registering people to vote. Soon after I graduated, I actually got a job on the 92 campaign, a quote unquote job, because they had the state Democratic Party had, I think they called it, fellowships, which I think was actually a way of paying sub-minimum wages for people. It was like you got a stipend of like $500 for a month. I think my official title was Minion. I, I worked on like fundraising and doing events and organizing surrogates. And you know what I really actually loved? I worked all day, worked all the time. And what was great about that experience was This was Los Angeles in 1992. There were people from all walks of life involved in that campaign. I remember working with someone who was a screenwriter and a guy who had directed documentaries and, like, people who had been in politics. After the campaign, I worked—I had gotten this fellowship to work on the— a Jesse Marvin Unruh Assembly Fellowship, and I worked on the California Assembly Education Committee until August that year, and then I went to Yale Law School in the fall of 1993.
2: You eventually sort of go through this. You ended up as Hillary Clinton's issues director Mm -hmm. in her Senate office, and then Mm -hmm. later in her 2008 presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. You said you first met her when she came to UCLA. I'm curious what impression she made on you when you first met her.
3: You know, it's interesting. I had always sort of thought of myself as more of a Bill Clinton person. Like, I really liked, I mean, I liked Hillary Clinton, but there were definitely people in the 90s who were really, like, super into Hillary Clinton. And, She was a little intimidating. I mean, she looked very different back then and had really long hair with a headband. And I think maybe it was because Bill Clinton, he has a life history that is much more growing up poor and advancing sort of on his own in a way that kind of resonated with me. Although, you know, Hillary certainly didn't grow up in a super privileged background, but it just sort of resonated more with me. And then so I sort of, you know, that was my broad impression of her.
2: So how did you get to know her better such that you ultimately became part of the circle? Oh,
3: after the 96 campaign, there was a job opening in the White House. So essentially in the 96 campaign, just from a complete fluke, the Republicans had their convention in San Diego again a sign that people thought California was in play, they decided to have their convention in San Diego. So all the Democrats came to do rapid response, and then a bunch of national party people came. I went to San Diego as well and worked with this person named Tom Jananda doing rapid response stuff. And then when Tom actually got a job in the White House in 97, early 97, and was able to hire a few people and asked me to work for him, so I went into the White House first and it was like an office within the chief of staff's office doing research on various topics. There was a job opening on the Domestic Policy Council on the Children and Families team. And in the Clinton White House, the way the policy apparatus for Hillary worked is that it was really integrated into the president's team. So so there, a job opened up in that team, and I applied for it. And I interviewed with Milan Verveer, who was Hillary's chief of staff, and interviewed with Bruce Reed and got the job. After a week or so of being in the job, Hillary had a policy meeting, and I had my first meeting with Hillary Clinton as part of her team and haven't really looked back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you a couple questions about working for Hillary Clinton. I mm-hmm. also want to sort of lay my cards out on the table about it. I've not interviewed Clinton. I don't know her at all. But there's no politician who I'm familiar with who has a bigger gap, I think, between public perception of her and what I hear from the people who have worked with Mm her. That Um, is true. Both Democrats and Republicans Mm -hmm. will tell me that she's extraordinarily well-briefed, very, very personally warm. Mm -hmm. And then you'll hear the impressions people have of her as a campaigner, as a public figure, and it's a much more remote, much more distant, much more calculating Machiavellian Mm -hmm. player. So I'd I'd really like to get your sense of what she is like behind closed doors in meetings Mm -hmm. as a public servant that is leading to such a high level of esteem and what people who are watching her in public are maybe missing. Yeah,
3: I worked for Hillary for pretty directly for 11 years and I worked for her in various policy roles. And I think the baseline question she basically always asks about any policy is, how is this going to help people? How many people is it going to help? And how is it actually going to work in, in like real people's lives? I think that the issue you're raising is one of the great mysteries of life I've been incapable of answering, which is, why there is a public perception of her that is essentially some version of Lady Macbeth <laughs> when she's in person, really funny, really warm. She's kind of a little sarcastic sense of humor. She's a very normal person. I mean, super smart, very policy briefed, well-briefed, asks the right questions. But at the end of the day, she's like a pretty normal person like everybody else. And I don't know if it's because... She kind of came into public life at a time where there weren't a lot of other women like her, and she came into it in a unique role where she wasn't running for, on her own. She was a first lady. I've had a lot of different bosses in in Washington, but, you know, she's definitely been one who... Keeps in touch and stays involved and asks how your kids are doing. I mean, when I worked, I didn't work for her when I had my first child. I had not worked for her for two years. She was the second person to call me in the hospital. You know, I didn't work for her when I had my second child. She was the first person to call me in the hospital. Just a little bit of an indictment of my family, but let's just leave that aside. I have to say I don't totally understand why people fill in in a negative way.
2: What is different about her in these meetings you mentioned she's a a normal person but she also has a reputation for being unusually competent and in some cases extremely intimidating person to brief i've heard a lot of folks say that when you go in to talk with secretary clinton or senator clinton about an issue that she's probably going to know your briefing book better than you do and she's going to Ask yeah. questions that are pretty hard to so answer. So
3: imagine being the person who advises her on healthcare when you're 27 <laughs> years old. And she's gone through everything she'd gone through. Like I started working for her in, I guess it was in November of 97. So, and again, I was 27 at the time. She is a person who has a very good BS detector. Right. So she can sort of sense when people are like making it up as they go along. And she asks really probing questions Like, I found it in my early stages intimidating, but I never found it overwhelming because I knew you had to be well briefed and you had to sort of I could anticipate the answer questions she would have and try to answer them ahead of time. And in the question she's asking, she doesn't like ask crazy questions. She really is asking about core questions. But I think. And I do think that's what leads to better policy. I mean, she explores in any issue, she sort of, you know, she does really explore the weak points of what the argument is so that you have the best case you can go forward. It is an area in which having a kind of legal training does help. You think through the weaknesses of your case, not just the strengths of your case.
2: What is she like as a manager of people? I mean, people talk, you've mentioned that she's warm, she checks up on people, But you've worked for a number of different Mm -hmm. bosses. You've been in Bill Clinton's White House. You've been in President Obama's White House, or Mm -hmm. at at the HHS anyway, when when he was in the White Mm -hmm. House. What is her approach to managing a staff? Because something that is very much in the background of her campaigns, in the background of, I think, this run in particular, is her campaigns have at times been chaotic. They've had a lot of different power centers. I think there is sometimes a feeling that people who've gotten into her inner orbit are not in some cases, the best people folks can imagine. I'm curious your impressions of her, uh, aside from Everyone as a policy mind. Everyone in her mind. orbit are the best people. <laughs> I you, said And that. you love them Everyone
3: all. Everyone in the orbit is, I'm <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I think the thing, you know, there are different strategies to governing. You can take an approach where it's kind of set a tone and you want people around you who make a series of decisions who, who basically all of agree with that and there's very little disagreement that's an argument that's often made about the bush administration a lot of people sort of saw things the same way and you get results that way (laughs) you know her approach is to have people who are very smart who don't necessarily always agree and will have some disagreements between them and I think in terms of governing, I think that is an actually better approach. It's like people have some disagreements and then she, you know, she makes the decision about which course to take. And I think that is actually, in my view, that is basically a strength. You set a tone where people can disagree respectfully. You know, obviously in the 08 campaign, that didn't always happen. Truth be told, a lot of the disagreements were aired publicly when the campaign was losing, not when it was winning. But what I think is good about this campaign cycle is that you're not seeing some of the messiness of the last mm-hmm. campaign cycle. But the truth is that I think it's actually an important thing for an important approach to governing, which is to have people who have strong opinions, who don't see things exactly the same way. Because I think that allows you to, to really think
1: borough.com slash box
2: there's two i think competing visions of clinton that are somewhat in tension with each other Mm -hmm. in terms of how she how she's viewed publicly and one is as this far left ideologue which is very prevalent vision of her i think on the right certainly even now but very much in the 90s and then there's this vision of her as this Calculating, you sort of made, you sort of said Lady Macbeth like figure, but but even beyond that, as someone without much ideological core who'll make whatever the deal is, and will sort of be a moderate Democrat at one point and, a, and a, a hardcore progressive when that looks to be the the path to political victory. How do you see her in terms of her political bottom lines? How where would you put her on the sort of ideological spectrum of contemporary American politics?
3: This is a great question. For me, I am so much more struck by the kind of consistency of issues across the board. I think of Hillary as basically a progressive on issues. And, you know, she's practical, she is very focused at how to make change in people's lives. You know, as a senator, she did try to make deals with Republicans to get things passed. Now, they were things she wanted passed not things, you know, they were things to make progressive change, not conservative change. In my view, she's, she's a practical person who's trying to deliver progressive change. And, you know, I started working for her in the 1990s in the Clinton White House. As a matter of course, progressives outside the White House, whether it was in labor or women's groups or, you know, senior groups, went to Hillary to figure out you know, how to push the White House in a more progressive direction. And when she was a senator from New York, you know, that was my first fight for her was expanding unemployment insurance and, like, fighting Republican efforts around that and working on issues around Plan B, which is basically ensuring easier access to contraception. So I find this perspective, this kind of sense of her as in the wind is really— off course. If I want to be really candid about it, I think a lot of that is, and you really even see this in the rhetoric, a lot of that is a criticism of the Clintons. It's like a Mm -hmm. perspective around Bill Clinton that people just superimpose on her. And I don't have any criticisms of Bill Clinton, but they are not the same people. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, just... Like, none to share. Um, But, you know, I mean, that's what I find it. I have to say, I find it a little weird. I mean, just having been there in the 90s, I find it a little weird that people are so comfortable. And you see this even amongst progressive writers. Like, you write about them, where they write about her as the Clintons. And it seems to me like we live in a world where she's living with the record of Bill Clinton when it hurts her. And she's not, she doesn't get any of the benefit of Bill Clinton when it helps her. It's like a lose-lose for her. I don't really get that. I mean, I remember in the 90s, everyone was like, she's a crazy ideologue. I mean, she was a socialist before socialism was in. All the right was like, <laughs> she's a socialist. I mean, I remember being in meetings and being in issues where, like, essentially some of the president's most centrist advisors were trying to keep issues away from her because they were like, Hillary is going to... Pushes us in a liberal direction on this thing or the other thing. So I find it's it's a little weird to me.
2: One of the themes that has been burbling in this election, I think, in a lot of different ways. And, and, and you mentioned this, I think, glancingly when you said that part of the public-private perceptions gap might have to do with her coming onto the scene at a time when there weren't many women in mm-hmm. the position she was in but there's been a real gender dimension at times to perceptions of her there's Mm -hmm. been pundits criticizing her for shouting when she is certainly not the only presidential candidate who raises their voice occasionally do you think that there is a big gender dimension to how she's perceived and, and in what ways positively and negatively do you think that plays out
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a—I mean, there has been a very gendered perception of Hillary over 20 years. It's hard to—it's hard for me to see things in any different way. You know, the optimist of me would say that the good news about the 2016 election cycle is that these there is a very gendered perspective, but it's definitely called out a lot more. So a bunch of male pundits— argue that hillary's not smiling or she's shouting too much in one of her election speeches and a lot of women reporters push back and a lot you know there's there's kind of videos created on both sides of that whereas in 2008 uh 2007 and 2008 you know my experience i felt very much like there was a very gendered perspective of hillary that didn't get called out you know i think A lot of even liberal journalists, all male, would basically intone that Hillary was a bitch. No one would really call it out, and and I think that has been a sea change. I do think that the culture has shifted. There's a lot more kind of recognition of sexism in the culture. There's a lot more voices in social media that recognize sort of assumptions around gender that didn't exist a decade ago. And so that has helped her. But now when reporters tell her to smile more, et cetera, I do think, like, people kind of recognize that. And I think that's part of the reason why there has been a very gendered response to Hillary. I mean, she has, she has a lot less support amongst white men than white women or, or women in general.
2: One of the reporters at Vox, Emily Crockett, wrote about a study today, and we'll, we'll, we'll put this up, but it found that when you do priming, social priming with white men, when you ask them about their perceptions of the presidential race, and before you ask them who they would vote for between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, you ask them how much money their wife makes, Yeah, that there's a 24-point, if I'm remembering the number right, I think it's a 24-point swing towards Trump.
3: Mm -hmm. compared
2: to if you ask them that question without getting them thinking about gendered pay differentials. Mm -hmm. And that struck me as a tremendous number, probably not a number that will actually show up in an election because there are a lot of different factors in an Mm -hmm. election beyond that kind of priming. But when they did the same thing with Bernie Sanders, there was no effect. Mm -hmm. And it struck me, if you can do that in a laboratory condition, that I think that is a larger effect than most people would like to admit is out there in the electorate. And I should say women, it pushed women towards Clinton, though not at the same numbers.
3: We've done a lot of work at the Center for American Progress on women's leadership issues, and you see this in different in different ways. So CEOs whose wives work have a tendency to treat women in the workplace very differently and more positively that, than CEOs whose wives don't work. When you do studies of men, there was a famous Harvard study of this, which is, you know you have a casebook example of an entrepreneur. and it's when it's and it's like the same person, you just change the name from Harriet to Harrietta. I'm sorry. when it's Harry, the attributes for the entrepreneur, which is the exact same story, is all positive, like strong and go-getter. and. When it's a woman, it's all negative. It's she's ambitious, but ambitious for her, selfishly, like, even though they literally are the same person. So, you know, I think the reality is that we still have a lot of perceptions of gender that have are influenced by what we think women should be doing or should not be doing that Hillary has borne the brunt of as the first for a long time. I mean, I remember in 2007 and 2008, so many pundits saying things like criticizing her personality and being really, really harsh to her and saying, you know, it's not women. It's just this woman. And, you know, I was like, where where are all the women behind her? Like, who are all the women running for president after Hillary Clinton? Like, it was like there was no one... Right behind her. And yet, you know, she was kind of bearing the brunt of that. So I will say to try to be a little bit optimistic about it is this cycle, when something super gendered happens, people call it out relatively quickly. I mean, they call it out online. They call it out personally. They, there was a discussion of it. That, I think, is a positive thing, and it's only through calling out those kind of gendered assumptions that people will change them.
2: Obviously, the the biggest difference... Of course, so a, it'll
3: be huge to actually have a woman president. That might help, too.
2: Well, well on that, I mean, <laughs> obviously, the big difference about a Hillary Clinton White House would be that it was led by Hillary Clinton, but Clinton has also created an upper rank in her leadership that I think is much more, Mm -hmm. uh, has many more women in it than the average male politician. Yeah, and much
3: more women, many more women of color. I mean, she's always had a lot of women of color around her.
2: How do you think that a White House run by a woman would in broad ways differ than the many, 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 many (laughs) White Houses we've had run by men, if at all?
3: You know, I think the issues will, will change. You know, what's fascinating to me or in some ways, deeply distressing and disturbing is you think that history is made of broad forces in the world. And that's really what changes how we get significant change and what really determines policy. But the reality is policy is determined by a bunch of people sitting around a table making the decisions at the end of the day. And the longer I've worked in Washington, the more I've been struck that the kind of personal experiences people have hugely affect the decisions they make and shape the policy agenda. So, you know, I think the reality is that in almost every issue Hillary has focused on, every role Hillary has had, I should say, in every role Hillary has had, she's worked on a kind a core set of issues that do disproportionately affect women, which is Expanding family medical leave, paid leave, child care, those kinds of equal pay, a whole slew of issues. You know, that's not to say that a male candidate or a male president doesn't care about those issues. President Obama obviously has placed some priority on those issues. Um, But I think it matters when it's something that you see in your own life, when you are the person who, like Hillary has, has to be the person who decides Am I going to meet my court date? Am I going to go to court and represent my firm in this big case when my daughter has this fever of 102? Am I going to travel on this day, et cetera? Having talked with Hillary about some of the trade-offs I've had to experience, like, you know, I know that she's felt that herself and has thought through those issues, and I think... The truth is that we, in one the areas in which, if you think of all the social policy we, we've had and the change we've made over the last 20 years, policy around women and families has had the least change at the national level. So really the last big change was the Family and Medical Leave Act in
2: 1993. They well, and welfare a, reform. And I welfare reform, which went the wrong
3: way in my view. But, you know, we haven't had any major breakthrough on those topics. And I'm not going to say it's only because we've had mostly men. But I do think Hillary would place a higher priority on some of those issues.
2: I'm interested to hear that that being in Washington and, and being in the meetings and rooms and policy processes you've been in has increased the amount to which you think individuals affect policy, because it's made me much more of a, a structuralist. It so often seems to yes, me Yes, that- you are wrong. I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> it so often seems to me that these stories get told about why, say, healthcare happened, mm-hmm. and we in the media we love to get these, you know, reports on what the meeting was like and who yelled at whom. But it just ends up being that well, that's what Congress is willing to do. What What are some examples, or an example of a place where you think that the course of policy was changed because, at a crucial moment, someone spoke up and moved things in a direction maybe they otherwise wouldn't have gone?
3: Well, I think healthcare is a good example. I mean, I think the fact that we had such a robust debate in the primary was a motivating factor to then Senator Obama being committed to it and also really wanting to accomplish it as president. I mean, I don't think it was that people were into it, but I think that was an area where the course of the debate in the two years before the presidency— And the fact that, you know, it was a singular issue for Senator Kennedy and Senator Kennedy had endorsed President Obama and Hillary had we had a well prosecuted case around that was an argument for why it actually happened. It wasn't it didn't happen because it was easy. Or totally, I mean, everyone knew going into it, it would be really hard and really hard for a long time. And as you know, a lot of the president's advisors who were not super into mm-hmm. doing it and he he did it, he pushed it despite their advice because he felt a personal commitment to do so. And I think that personal commitment to do so was shaped by a lot of personal events that had happened. So... I'm always struck by the sort of accidents of history that lead a certain group of people to be the people who make the decision around a certain set of topics.
2: So let me let me push my wrong structural view of healthcare at you.
3: Okay.
2: So I remember the Center for American Progress, in whose hallowed building we sit now, releasing in 2005. I think March, it was March.
3: 23rd, Which was five years to the date that March the bill, 23rd. That the bill actually was signed by the president.
2: Releasing a big health care plan that ended up having not being identical to what the candidates later did, but but having but, but informing impact. it to a very huge impact. Uh, significant degree. I
3: don't want to take away from that.
2: <laughs> but in part, I think that suggested that for all kinds of reasons, the Democratic Party was, was moving in that direction. You had Edwards come out with a big health care plan, mm-hmm. Clinton come out with a big health care plan. And it's always seemed to me that if Obama could have had his way, that healthcare was not the one he cared about most. That he would have liked to do energy first. He was very committed to to cap and trade. He really cared about about climate change, but that when he looked at where the Democratic Party was, what Max Baucus and the finance committee were willing to do, what people were demanding of the next Democratic president, that for all he and his advisors maybe didn't think the politics of healthcare were the best and maybe didn't feel it was their top priority structurally because of the institutions they were tied to, that more work had been done on how to do healthcare care reform. There were more good examples of it, like in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. And that that was just the way that ended up being clearer and that they got, that got pushed down, which isn't to say, of course, that that road is not made of individuals doing sort of mm-hmm. things on their own. But that has always struck me as an example of in the 2008 primary, and we spoke a lot back then, Obama was clearly the, of the three major candidates who ran the one with the worst healthcare plan, who was the least personally committed to it, but I think just ended up. Being I'm not into
3: endorsing it. that view. Just to be, <laughs> I'm clear. I'm putting
2: it out straightforwardly and wrote it at the time. He had other good qualities, but his healthcare plan ended up looking a lot more like the healthcare plans of his competitors than his own once he actually passed Obamacare, and for good reason because he left out the individual mandate. <laughs>
3: You know, I guess this is really just a glass half full, or glass half empty position, because I do think, look, it's absolutely the case the president was committed to, to doing a range of big things, and the Democratic Party, as demonstrated by it passing the bill both out of the House and the Senate, unlike what happened with cap and trade, was focused on it. But, you know, having gone through the debates within the White House, where there were definitely voices of recalcitrance. You know, the president at various moments, and really in every moment where it was go big or go small, first it was go or not go, then it was go big or go small, go big or go small, He, he pushed to go big and not small. He in the beginning of that process, had a lot of cards to play. I mean, just in the budget process, he could have have signaled less or signaled more, and he continually signaled more. And I think that was also a function of—he did recognize where the party was, but there were a lot of times he had to push a lot of Democrats himself personally to get over the line, and he did that because he was committed to doing it. So— I think that's an example. It's definitely you know you can't have it's it's not like anyone's a czar and Mm -hmm. you can make fundamental policy change in the United States with a kind of runaway president who really wants to just do this thing and
2: wait till President (laughs) Trump builds that wall.
3: (laughs) So that's you know. Th- that's where checks and balances is very comforting. Um, <laughs> but it is to say that in big ways and in, and in small, I, I've seen it just a, a million times that the people who kind of set the the agenda, their own experiences, their own sense of priorities are really does shape it. I mean, it's really just a bunch of people making decisions.
2: I want to ask about one other facet of Clinton's ideology that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I want to ask you a couple things about think tanks. Um, yes, we there, have
3: to get to think tanks at some point.
2: There is a, a <laughs> populism that has run through, I think, much of Hillary Clinton's career, going mm-hmm. way, way, way back mm-hmm. to working on the Children's Defense mm-hmm. Fund. The way she ran healthcare reform in 94 mm-hmm. obviously had business and insurers and were around the table, but she often took a pretty confrontational stance with much of, of the industry sometimes because mm-hmm. it was necessary. Sometimes, in retrospect, others believed to her detriment. And then there's the the Hillary Clinton who goes and takes $675,000 from Goldman Sachs for three speeches. Mm -hmm. And I find it hard to reconcile those two Clintons, right? The the one who both has— Because on the one hand, one of them has, it seems to me, not just a populist instinct on a policy level, but also a sense that— being too allied with some of these companies can be very bad politics, right, a, mm-hmm. a sense that sometimes you need to be positioning yourself against the big insurers in healthcare. And then, you know, a year and a half before running for president, Goldman Sachs was not popular in the aftermath of the financial mm-hmm. crisis. You know, when I talk to people about her, this is, you know, particularly to liberals, this is a reason that they feel that they'll look at her policy and say, look, I like her financial regulation plan, but to me, the speeches at Goldman Sachs speak louder than the release of the plan, and I'm curious how you reconcile those things.
3: I think this is a great question because I, you know I think it's. <laughs> I,
2: really, I really think it. Hits I, at the I would heart love of the to, issue. I would <laughs> love to answer it
3: for everyone. The reason why these things don't seem in conflict to her is because the idea of shaping her policies based on what Goldman Sachs or anyone else wants is ridiculous. Like in 2007 and 2008. I can say I worked on Hillary's policies. I was her policy director on her presidential campaign. We saw challenges in the subprime mortgage industry. We saw, you know, there were rumors that Goldman Sachs was going to collapse. We saw problems with derivatives. There wasn't a single moment in that entire process where Hillary even signaled that we should care what donors would say. Not even signaled. Like, we were to the left of a number of candidates who ran that cycle on a range of economic issues. And we didn't check in with donors ahead of time. We never talked to anyone ahead of time about those topics. People definitely complained afterwards. And she, just on the issue of carried interest, people forget this, but in the debate, there were proposals to Reform carried interest or eliminate carried interest. Hillary took the position of eliminating the differential and in carried interest. There were other candidates at the time who took other positions. Like we which kn- candidates? <laughs> what positions? <laughs> there were Democrats running. You can look them up if you'd like. I mean, they're great people. I have deep respect for them, but who took different positions. And, you know, I remember we were seeing problems in on Wall Street, and we had a proposal in November of 2007 that she announced in Iowa, of all places, of regulating derivatives. She knew. We talked about the challenge of derivatives. People didn't know what the value of it was. She was like, what sense does it make to sell a product that people don't have the value of? You know, she talked at the time of the wild, wild west of Wall Street, where people had no idea what they were buying or selling, there was no regulation, and that that was putting people at risk. And not once, not once did anyone ever raise an issue or a concern or even have a say at the table who was concerned about donors. So I think the reason why this seems ridiculous is the idea that you could buy Hillary Clinton for $675,000 or any amount of money like that is ludicrous and has never been the case, never will be the case.
2: I can understand that argument, right, from her perspective. On the other hand, to people for whom 675000 is a ton of money, for mm-hmm. whom, you know, you could buy a lot of people for $675,000.
3: Obviously, you can buy Ezra, <laughs> if anyone's wondering. If anybody's me, got, not me. If anybody's got
2: $700,000, we can talk. <laughs> um, and this podcast also is open for advertisements. <laughs> that would be higher than our normal rates, but I'll say a lot of things allowed for $700,000. But the way that looks, right? I mean, Larry Lessig talks a lot about money and politics, and one of the things he argues is even separate from the actual corruption it may or may not bring there's an appearance of corruption. I mean, this a feeling is ridiculous that people believe this
3: is ridiculous. Why? Because I think the idea, this is like what we deal with what we've dealt with in like twenty-five years of Washington. There's no actual fact of Hillary ever having anything doing anything scandalous, but it's the appearance of a scandal. I mean, I think from her perspective. And the campaign can speak for itself. But the fact is that she has had a robust set of policies on this campaign, I would argue more robust than anyone else running on how to deal with the financial sector and how to make sure the financial sector is actually working well for the country, not just making money for itself but working well for the country. And that should be the judge. That should be how progressives and conservatives and independents judge. And I think the truth is we live in very cynical times, and people don't have as much faith in public policy, so they use these shorthands. And I think what is disappointing to me about this primary is that there are so many people who are willing to throw aside this person's work on issues related to children, issues related to health care, issues related to a core set of progressive values over 25 years, and cynically place their eggs in a basket around a speech or something she did versus look at her record.
2: Abstracting out from Clinton, how do you think about the concerns you've now seen actually in the republican party with donald trump but also in the democratic party around sanders's campaign with money and politics because i think there's a, a fascinating dynamic right now where on the one hand it's actually clear in this campaign that money does not buy elections very easily. Sanders yeah, has, super
3: PACs are like doing nothing. Super
2: PACs have been a complete disaster. They've mm-hmm. been an amazing way.
3: The ROI people, has not been so great for the for the billionaires been going into the super PACs, it, particularly in the Republican side. What
2: was the number? Jeb Bush spent a couple million dollars for each percentage point he lost in the polls. I mean, it was unbelievable. And Trump has spent very little. So on the one hand, both Sanders and Trump are running on the argument that part of the problem in American politics is it can be bought so easily. Mm-hmm. I think both of their campaigns have in some ways shown that it is happily harder to buy than than many people think. At the same time, there is clearly a tremendous level, as you say, of cynicism and concern over this issue. So what is your view, having participated in the policy process, putting aside campaign policy processes now, of how money affects how legislation is drafted, what kinds of regulations are laid down, how White Houses create their legislation, and then what would actually be effective ways to deal with some of those problems?
3: So I think the problem can be very much bifurcated between the presidency and the executive branch and Congress. And there are fantastic people in Congress, but I do think the system of raising money in in congressional races makes it very difficult and in terms of specific issues. And if we want to just to be completely candid about it, I've worked on a range of issues in the administration, both in the Clinton administration and in the Obama administration, and I've never been part of a policy process where anyone has ever raised what donors are concerned about. Right. I've just never actually happened. But
2: but weren't there deals with the pharmaceutical companies and the insurers around uh, Obamacare? I mean, yes, but that wasn't.
3: Yes, yes. But that wasn't about the president's donors having impact on the president. That was motivated by what they could do in Congress. So Rahm Emanuel had a very specific view, which is the insurers and pharmaceutical groups killed the Health Security Act in 1993 by running ads in congressional districts. It wasn't really about the president not being reelected. It was about congressional seats not being reelected or donors to congressional campaigns. And there are policies today. I mean, we have worked on a range of issues at the Center for American Progress on high pharmaceutical costs. Pharmaceutical costs are an issue that has been difficult. I mean, it was definitely much more of a challenge amongst Republicans, but there are Democrats on the Hill who have been less receptive to those ideas. So we've done research on on some issues around trust in government and I think people's sort of singular perspective is that, you know, Congress is heavily influenced by lobbyists and donors. And there is some truth to that concern. Now, again, I don't want to give in to everyone's cynicism. I mean, I worked on the Affordable Care Act, and almost every conversation I had with members of Congress was really about how good the bill was and whether it would work. And there are lots of members of Congress who knew voting for that bill would hurt them in their reelection, and. They voted for it anyway because they thought it was the right thing to do. But I think that the issue of money in politics is one in which you see on the presidential level, it's really tough, at least on the Democratic side. I don't think money has determined anything in in election cycles, in my experience, in terms of influencing policy. But, you know, I, I think there is reason to be somewhat anxious about how much money is spent in the congressional side.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens.
2: Center for American Progress is, I think at this point, the most influential left of center think tank. Um, you're probably not going to argue with me on that, but but that's my There are lots of great ones,
3: that. but I would agree with you. <laughs> and <laughs> it was
2: formed, and any parts of the history you feel I get wrong here, just please correct me. But So the Center for American Progress is created in the Bush era. And it's created in the Bush era, as I remember it, partly because liberals believed during that period that they are— losing the war of ideas. Not so much that their ideas are worse, but that they do not have the infrastructure to make their ideas clear, to make them understood, to get them out into the media, to, to put them into, into the political system. And so Sanders created, uh, and it becomes, I think, very, very rapidly both the sort of main source where out year democratic policy talent ends up staying, but also it creates the Center for American Progress Action Fund, which is a step in a new direction, I think, towards weaponizing those ideas, towards doing new kinds of rapid response. And so I'm curious how you see the role of the think tank evolving, what you think the lessons of the Center for American Progress are right now, and what is the role of a think tank like this one, both when a Republican's in the White House, because it's obviously a progressive institution, and when a Democrat is in the White House?
3: The way I think about what we were doing at the beginning, because I actually was the second hire at the Center for American Progress and I worked on, I wrote the first version of our prospectus, was really an understanding of two problems. One is an ideas generation problem, and the other was a communication problem. So we were born in the Bush years, but the idea of creating something like a progressive think tank was. Percolating in the 1990s. So, even in the Clinton years, you know, looking out from the Clinton administration, there were definitely a lot of organizations on the center left, but the right had real advantages in having a series of think tanks, not one, but several think tanks that were ideological and also multi-issue, and we didn't have anything that was multi-issue and ideological. I mean, there's definitely fantastic organizations like the Economic Policy Institute pretty much focused on economics, and the right had developed ideas from the intersection of issues in a way that the left really hadn't focused on. And I think being out of power in terms of not having the White House also created an ideas vacuum. So in the early 2000s, a lot of people were sort of living on the fumes of the Clinton years instead of thinking through what new ideas we had to put forward. And so that's why in our earliest years, we we weren't thinking of just Incremental change, but bigger policy changes. And our views on healthcare was it wasn't enough to be incremental. John Kerry had proposed sort of incremental changes on healthcare that covered a few more people, but really trying to get to a near universal healthcare system. And that bore out with our ideas around those issues. But at the same time, we recognize that it was not enough to just have ideas on the table. You had to try to develop those ideas so our mission is different from other places or other think tanks our mission is to make policy change in the country we think through not only the solution for a problem in the country but how to look at the policy environment and push change through it we have invested a lot in communications we also have a government affairs team We have a a team that also works in the states to push policy ideas in the states because our idea is not just, it's good to have an idea there, but how to make it happen. Now, we're different from a lot of other sort of political groups in that we think, and this is fundamental to us, we think ideas are at the center of how you get change in the country. You need movements, but movements need not just your critique, they need a solution set to make change possible over the long term so that was really the way we developed there were people in 2003 who thought you know what we really need is kind of a rapid response operation to the bush administration then the dnc isn't really going to do that and we need to just invest in some group of people doing that we rejected that idea and thought we also needed a lot more on the positive communication side. I have to say, in our last several years, the issue that I am most proud of is our our focus on rising economic inequality in the country as a challenge to economic growth, as well as a moral challenge, and trying to develop ideas around how to get more shared growth.
2: Well, one thing I'm always interested in is the way in which think tanks through ideas and through the networks in which they work can agenda set. And so as you mentioned, I think one place you guys have been very influential is is that nexus of inequality and growth. What are the policies that maybe have not traditionally gotten that much attention from the political system, but that the Center for American Progress has tried to push closer to the center and where they've been successful?
3: You mean beyond economic inequality? Beyond, beyond
2: that one, because I, I do think the inequality has been uh, has been a growing issue for, for a time, and you guys have been a, a big part of it. But are there things like occupational licensing, say, which I, I don't think is one for here, but has all of a sudden it's now in the budget, and it's in a number of the presidential candidates' economic plans where it wasn't a big deal, wasn't something you heard about in 2004 at all?
3: There's a, a range of issues. I mean, just in, in a kind of strategy November of 2010, we put out an important paper on executive actions. Uh, you know we sort of saw ahead that that election might not go so well. And we put forward a, a series of ideas across the board, things that touched on immigration and clean energy, a whole range of, of relatively bold ideas that in many ways, I'd say at this point, most of those ideas, have been adopted by the Obama administration. In terms of specific ideas, an area that I I am most proud of is the kind of intellectual work we've done over several years around the issue of paid leave. So making the case about why paid leave actually helps economic growth writ large, why attracting women into the workplace is a long-term economic growth strategy, Developing particular ideas around paid leave that have been introduced in legislation and also are forming the basis of all the presidential candidates at this point on the Democratic side is one in which really from the idea development, the analytics to this specific proposal, CAP has been, I'd say, at the forefront of all of those.
2: Um, one tension, I think, when you have a think tank, is I think a lot of the, the modern and, and obviously the influential think tanks are, when you have a think tank that is explicitly developed to make change, is that it puts, I think, certain boundaries on what kinds of thoughts are worth thinking, right? What kinds of policies are worth considering? because it, Like, what do you mean? Because it pushes you or, or I think, other, other think tanks Towards policies that exist on at the very least the edge of the possible as opposed to I'm not saying this would be uh, an idea that Center for American Progress would be interested in but exploring a universal basic income in a very big way mm-hmm. or some of the some of the things are a little bit more pie in the sky how do you guys navigate that tension
3: you know I think the truth is that there are some issues where you have to think boldly about the set of challenges you're facing. It really just depends on what kind of problem you're solving for. We have some major ideas coming out this year. They're not fully baked just yet, but um, we've touched on them before, like developing a sovereign wealth fund in the U.S. that would dramatically increase retirement savings. There are ideas that we're developing that I don't think you should always be constrained by the political environment. I think that is You know, that is definitely a a lesson that we've learned from the right, which is sometimes it's the boldest policy ideas that just take a very long time to get to fruition. So when you look at the right, you know, they have mastered the idea of taking a very bold idea, sometimes doing it in the States. As you know, welfare reform was something that they pushed over a 20-year period, Sometimes it's not successful, like privatizing Social Security, 20-year idea that didn't really work. A lot of money invested in it It hasn't actually happened, probably going in the opposite direction as a country, particularly with a President Trump. But um, just kidding. I don't think that being focused on policy change should make people timid. I mean, I think the truth is that we are focused on policy change, and sometimes that means that you're going to support something like the Affordable Care Act. Sometimes it means you're going to, you know, support a particular rule that will have a smaller impact. But I don't think that policy change makes people think in small terms. It's really defined by the nature of the problem. Mm -hmm. Right now we have a substantial challenge with rising inequality in the country and the lack of median wage growth. Middle class wages have been really stuck I think the interesting thing about the political debates we're having in the country is, in my view, the aperture for change is widening, not closing. And so for us, we have to, you know, that gives us more of an opportunity, but still at the end of the day, we have to figure out what will actually solve that problem. What could policymakers or policymakers and the private sector, or policymakers together working with the private sector could actually do? to encourage firms to share some of their levels of profitability with the vast majority of their workers.
2: What are three books on public policy that have influenced you and you think people interested in these topics should read?
3: The most significant book that I've read in the last several years is Why Nations Fail by Daron Acemoglu and James Robinson. I think it is actually a, f- a fantastic analysis of how the U.S. will grow, or if it will grow, how it will grow over the next several years. And also it gives you a great perspective on other countries from Russia to China to every other country we're dealing with. Have I read any other policy books in the last couple of years? I, t- I tend to read fiction. The second great book is not a traditional policy book. It's the Great Unwinding by George Packer, which tells the story of the economy and its change and how it's changed and actually rising inequality through the perspective of four plus lives. But I think it actually does tell you a lot about what's happening in America in this election cycle over the last several years because of the economic changes people are experiencing The actual last book, which I haven't read, which is an old book from the 90s, but is one of my favorite books ever, is The Feminist Economy and Economic Man, which discusses the role of women in encouraging more opportunity for women. There are ideas in there that I don't ascribe to, but it opened up my mind about how you can look at women's rights from an economic perspective.
2: And what are two think tank papers, one from the left, including maybe from Cap. Uh, and one from the right that you've read at any point that in, in recent years that have influenced how you think, that you think people should be taken seriously?
3: The work I'm most proud of on the left, shockingly, is the a, is a Center for American Progress product on inclusive prosperity, which is a commission we did, and it was a report that came out of the commission. And I think the most important idea that came out of that is that It looked at how the middle class is faring around the world and found that some countries have actually had median wage growth. And some of the forces that we think are, we take as a given and almost act as if there's nothing to do about it, we're very fatalistic about them. You know, other countries have managed to ensure their families, their middle class families, fare much better. So it was kind of a call to arms. In terms of ideas... AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, has done a lot of fascinating work around marriage. We are doing work with them around supporting. From our perspective, it's more family stability that provides more resources in terms of time and money, but both to low-income children. And that's an area where I think there are good ideas, good bipartisan ideas for us to to work on.
2: And the final question, who are some of the members of Congress who maybe most of the audience wouldn't know, but who are doing really interesting entrepreneurial policy work? Who sort of, in ways that are behind the scenes, is impressing you as really trying to drive issues forward in in interesting, unusual ways? So
3: Peter Welch in Vermont has been particularly focused on this challenge around inequality and how to get Economic growth more broadly shared. We've done great work with uh, with Cory Booker and others on on mass incarceration. He's definitely focused on those issues ahead of uh, ahead of a lot of other people. I'm sure I can come up with other people if you give me time.
2: Those are two good ones. <laughs> <laughs> Near attended. Thank you very much. Thank you. As always, thank you to New York Spent a lot of time with us. Really appreciated it. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a production of Vox.com and Panoply. And I will see you next week.
0: First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts.